This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we will take a trip to Corinth for an examination of the first letter to that complex city. Yes, sir. All right. It was necessary to go verse by verse through Galatians. and Hopefully we saw why, since I believe it crucial to understanding the world of the New Testament personally. Uh, Romans, we had to do Romans verse by verse, since everyone's going to argue with all of my theology, and they're going to do it from Romans. <laughs> so... I had to uh, deal with Romans verse by verse. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to do any other verse by verses. I want to slow down with Hebrews. Hebrews is one of my favorite books. I'm not going to do verse by verse. We're going to slow down. And we're going to slow down through Revelation because, duh, I've got to do that, right? Um, I guess so. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I wanted to present my perspective on those books without dodging passages or leaving anything out. Uh, and now we're going to we're gonna pick up the pace like we did in session one and two, and we're going to survey the rest of Paul's letters. We're going to do like a book, an episode. Some of them are going to be short. Uh, and again, we're going to ignore chronology, and I'm going to turn my sights uh, to Corinthians next, first and second. Now, we're just going to make people upset because people are going to think I'm dodging this passage or that thing or, or whatever. We're just going to, because we're not doing verse by verse, we're just not going to do it. We don't have that kind of time. We're not going to do it. So uh, we're going to be, so I'm sorry. Let me just say I'm sorry up front. I'm sorry that we won't deal with your passage. It's okay. Okay, moving. We may in the future. I reserve the right to yeah. come back to something later if we yeah. want to. Yeah, and we're, and and I'm going to kind of take a, especially for Corinthians. I'm going to do something really weird here that's not typical for me. I'm not going to go in order. I'm going to like, I'm going to be shooting like all over the book of First Corinthians to try to talk about some of the big things, uh, big big themes. And uh, while I'm thinking of it, uh, let's recommend a book, Brent. We didn't, it's been a while since we recommended a good source. So uh, there's a book called Paul Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's by Kenneth Bailey. We've talked about Kenneth Bailey before. Great uh, New Testament scholar, literary scholar. And uh, Paul Through Middle Eastern Eyes, it's going to hit on a few different books, but it's really going to be kind of focused on on Corinthians. So uh, it's a good book for Corinthians, but it's it's got some other things too, other, other bits and pieces of Paul's letters. And he's going to be a literary scholar, so he's going to say this and that, and you may not understand this or agree with that or like that nuance, but a really great, he's not, he's even going to say things that are going to go maybe even against some of the things that I say or, or, or whatever, but just a great source. And I totally uh, trust and love Kenneth Bailey as a scholar. So we'll recommend that book. We'll put it in the show notes there. And uh, it's a great uh, book to read. If you've enjoyed Kenneth Bailey before, you'll enjoy that one as what well. What have we recommended of his before? Let's see. I, I believe we might have recommended Poet and Peasant. Oh, yes. And Through Peasant's Eyes. Right. Yep. Combination volume. And uh, he also wrote Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Um, he wrote a lot of books, actually. There's quite a handful of them. But those are some that we've recommended before. So, yeah. Good, good stuff. All right. So, let's see. Let's do a brief note on the context of Corinth. Let's do that. Corinth found itself as a major, major port city to the world of Greco-Asia, like one of the big ones. You said it was a complex city. A very complex city, yeah. This centralized port made Corinth a melting pot of culture, hence its complexity. Not so much in its structure. I don't know anything about the engineering of Corinth, but um, uh, definitely when it comes to the people group, the demographic, who was there, uh, it was the most. It was one of the most eclectic cities in the entire Roman Empire. Uh, While this diversity makes it difficult to pin down absolute statements about Corinthian culture, uh, we do know it was super diverse in its people and its idolatry. 
uh, ancient, ancient Corinth, kind of like pre-biblical Corinth, appears to have chosen uh, what we would call maybe a different version of, but we would probably refer to him as Poseidon as their god of choice. Interesting choice. Port city. So was it established as a Greek city or was it pre-existing Ooh, in, as far in the as its origins? It that is a wonderful question. I cannot remember how the city of Corinth uh, evolved, but by the time it did become a Greco-Roman city, uh, it's much more complicated. So when you say pre-biblical, you mean pre the letters to the Corinthians? Yes, okay. and I, I believe what I would like to say is pre-Greek. I would probably need to be checked on that, but I would say pre-Greco Corinth. Um, By the time we get to, if not, it's at least pre-Roman. By the time we get to Roman Corinth, uh, we're going to have, it's going to have evolved uh, immensely to uh, maybe we might say, quote unquote, meet the needs of its diverse demographics. Uh, We do know that Aphrodite, by the the time that Corinth is written, Aphrodite has been uh, kind of the, uh, it's her neo-chorus. She is the chief goddess uh, in Corinth during the first century. There's a lot of other goddesses that have a huge um, presence in Corinth. Goddesses like uh, Hera, wife of Zeus, uh, Athena, Artemis, just like Ephesus, uh, Demeter, just to name a few, big presences in Corinth. Corinth had quickly become uh, one of the centers for goddess worship, with Aphrodite being the chief among those. You can imagine how this led to rampant sexual immorality. We all know the goddess Aphrodite connected to love, sexual love, erotic love. You can imagine if your chief goddess is Aphrodite, what that does to the sexual morality of your culture. Uh, Picture the stereotype of Las Vegas. Multiply that a few times over, and we're starting to get close. Needless to say, the main characteristic of the city of Corinth will be its diversity. This will show up all throughout the first letter to the Corinthians, and it's helpful to know where that's rooted in historical context, whether it's ethnic and racial diversity, the many different idolatrous practices and sexual morality, or even just the immense variety of vocational pursuits. This will create a culture that is searching for identity and using their identity to be distinct. This will become a massive challenge to a group of believers who are trying to show the world a blended family, to call back to Romans, built on unity and acceptance and it's, this is the first thing I would point out about Corinthians, first Corinthians. They are struggling with unity. They want to define themselves by what makes them unique and not what holds them together. Consider some of these passages. Uh, let's start in chapter one. Brent, go ahead and read us some. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I love that. Uh, I love that list there. I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos, but I follow Cephas. Well, I follow, uh, I love the last one, the super spiritual, Jesus Duke. Well, I follow Christ. Ha! Why can I not never say Cephas's name? Right? Uh, I don't know. It's all okay. I mean, <laughs> Kepha is uh, Hebrew, so you're just putting the two together. It's all beautiful right. in all a right. blended family, gentile kind of way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right, so this conversation continues. Like, Paul's like, why are you divided? Christ wasn't divided. Paul wasn't crucified for you. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
And so he continues uh, for a couple more chapters, and, and we hear about it more in chapter 3. Go ahead and read us some from chapter 3 here, Brent. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So consider then, if this is the theme of conversation, how this affects uh, one of the very next things that Paul... So think about that context of all these divisions, everybody trying to find their identity and being divided rather than being united. Consider that context as you hear these words from Paul that come later in chapter 3. Go ahead. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. All right, now I can't tell you how many times that passage was used to hound the youth group version of myself about the dangers of smoking, drinking, and having sex. Didn't I know that my body, Marty's body, was a temple for the Holy Spirit? And while this point may or may not be valid, I mean, Paul's going to actually say later in Corinthians, this is why we don't join our body, our body, to a prostitute. Okay, I, there's a point there. Let's take time to correct this faulty exegesis here in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says that they, and in this case, they is singular or plural, Brent? Plural. Plural. They, plural. Don't you know that you all, y'all, are a temple? Are a temple? How many temples? Singular or plural? One temple. One temple. Don't you know that y'all are a temple for God's spirit. If they can't find unity, they destroy the temple of God. They, plural in the Greek, have to be united, unified, so that God can live in their community and work through them. So imagine the scenario described in chapter 6. Try to relate to this. I say imagine. I say that very tongue-in-cheek. Try to imagine. Let's, let's, let's keep moving on. Let's move on. Try to imagine a world where this next passage could be true. Try to imagine. Okay, go ahead. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Nice little kavaome there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. <laughs> so nice of him. <laughs> in case there's any doubt, I say this to shame you. <laughs> is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So try to imagine a world, Brent, where believers would sue other believers. Imagine a world. I'm so glad that we evolved beyond that. We would never do that today, obviously, with our super sophisticated conscience. No, of course, we still do this stuff. Ah, This disunity is ruining their body, their reputation, and the mission of God through them in Corinth. 
I find this message to be incredibly timely for our culture as well. Although when I read these words from Paul, I feel like the concept is so straightforward that if I try to elaborate on it, I'll ruin it. We ought to come to grips with the truth, but we just don't want to follow these commands. This leads me to one other observation I will make about this disunity. It's getting in the way of how they're able to receive instruction, even from the apostles of Christ. Listen to this from chapter 4. I am writing this not to shame you, okay. in contrast to what he was doing. He was before, but now he's not. He's very clear. You know whether you should feel shame or not. <laughs> I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? In a theme that will come up again in Second Corinthians, Paul addresses their arrogance and the disrespect they have for the work of the apostles. They presume themselves to be teachers and apostles, and rather than receiving the instruction of Paul and others, they go on their own way, which is where this hits home for me, and not just for me, but for all of us. It's no secret to us that we have the Corinthian plague. We find ourselves in a culture of immense diversity, and we seek an identity of our own. This seeking of identity drives us to preserve that which makes us distinct from others, rather than drawing us together towards the same grace that should, that should unite us. Think about the book of Romans. No condemnation. Same justification. Same grace. We have an immense disunity problem. Whether it's in the form of trends, theological categories, denominational belief statements, genders, political parties, we have a problem. We cheat each other. We take advantage of our brothers. We seek to hurt those who have hurt us. Even within our own family of God, I have sat through far too many courtroom battles where both plaintiff and defendant claim to be followers of Jesus. Even as I think about that last statement, like I, I have to just, I, I'm incredulous to the fact that it would be true. There are far too many times when we are shameless in this disheartening truth, plastering it on Facebook, announcing our self-righteous identities for all to see. We're ready to pick a fight with anybody who dares. And for all of our love for Paul and all the ways we worship the parts of Pauline literature that fuel our systematic theologies, we sure don't have a hard time kicking Paul's imperative teachings to the curb on this one. And do we all know why? Because we are arrogant, just like the Corinthians. We have no respect for the teachings of the apostles, except when it suits our doctrinal codes. We don't actually want to love. We don't actually want to listen to Paul. We sure aren't going to do what he says if we don't like it. We're Americans, after all. We don't answer to anybody. Which is something that I can hear the Corinthians saying quite clearly. But uh, let's keep moving. I mean, we discussed earlier the context of Corinth and its impact on the setting for Paul's letters. And while we made mention of the cultural diversity that drove deep divisions into the people of God, we hinted at another problem glaring at us from the pages of 1 Corinthians. With Corinth being a centerpiece, of, uh, a centerpiece of goddess worship, particularly with the worship of goddesses like Aphrodite and Artemis, sexual immorality ran rampant in Corinth in a way that was unique to most of the rest of the empire. Consider 
You got a couple passages from us uh, for us here, Brent. Five uh, from chapter five and chapter six. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Go ahead and give me the next one from chapter 6 too. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. All right, so Paul goes on to quite a teaching from here. And these messages of sexual morality, he goes on into a teaching on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. And I know that for me as a young person, this is one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament. Did God not want us to get married? Was uh, married a second best plan for God? It uh, certainly can read that way, but knowing more about the context of Corinth has helped me put everything in its appropriate place, at least within my mind. You might remember when we talked about the narrative as a whole, we said, uh, Becca, I don't know how many episodes ago that was, we talked about the epilogue uh, after we are studying the book of Acts. We said that Paul's letters need to be read in context because he was trying to help each of those churches live out the message of God, uh, the message of Jesus within their own unique setting. In the context of Corinth, Paul is inviting them to tell a different story with their lives. In a world obsessed with sex, Paul invites the people of God to consider a testimony of abstinence. Paul is not making a declaration of biblical morality, which explains, by the way, where there's so many qualifying statements. Do you love these verses? Uh, I don't know if you can find any of these in chapter 7, Brent. Uh, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Or... um, uh, okay, now it's the Lord speaking. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Okay, so which verse is that? Uh, verse 6. Okay, uh, do you find any other ones there as you look? Uh, verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Okay, so the Lord's not saying this, which by the way, I just love this. For all of us that are like, inspiration of the text, which I totally believe in. I've said that numerous times. Hopefully I've made that clear throughout this podcast. But for those of us that just trumpet plenary verbal inspiration of the text. Like we believe that every single word is inspired. What do we do with that? (laughs) When Paul says, by the way, this is not, did that verse say not I, but the Lord? Is that what that verse said? Verse 10, it says to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And then verse 12, he says to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Okay. So just out of curiosity, is that part inspired? That's like, we always are like, oh yeah, this is all God's words. But what do you do when the person with God's words says this isn't God's word. Oh man, this is so confusing. I think the real issue you're um, presenting to me here is that I did not understand the context of this um, this chapter when I used it as a justification to break up with a girlfriend long ago. <laughs> man, do I hope she's not a podcast listener. Yeah. Oh man. She's got an email waiting for you. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So, so, so yeah, like I just love this. And, and, and yes, I believe this is all inspired, but again, Hopefully by now we've kind of learned like, 
how to read the Bible. Because what we're reading here is an inspired conversation where Paul is saying, man, as I think about marriage, as I think about your context, this is what I would tell you to do. And it's not that I believe the Lord is telling you to do this, but this is my suggestion. But you Corinthians now, now remember our conversation in Acts about binding and loosing? Like you Corinthians now need to take this and you need to go wrestle with this and you can bind and loose it. But this is what my opinion would be. Of course, there are some things that aren't my opinion. It, to the married, I say this, like not I, but the Lord, like the Lord has this to say to you, not just my opinion. Like this is what you need. It, it, it's full of so many good little tasty little vittles. But this isn't the only issue of compromise the church in Corinth is struggling with. We also mentioned that Corinth brought an incredible amount of vocational vocational diversity. In the Roman Empire, vocations were tied to a system called, uh, they were called guilds, a guild system. To understand the ancient Roman guild, I always picture uh, the brotherhood of a fraternity, a college fraternity, combined with the commitment of a labor union. These guilds were vocational factions that provided a system of brotherhood and camaraderie. They looked out for each other. The problem with this system with these Roman guilds, besides the fact that it only fostered more division, is that each guild also worshipped one of the Roman gods. So the guild feasts of the first century were almost without exception filled with drunken debauchery and sexual immorality. So so Corinth had a god, or in this case a goddess. Her name was what? Aphrodite. Aphrodite. Right? So Rome would have a god, that'd be Caesar. And then every city would have a god. In, In Corinth's case, it's Aphrodite. But then every vocation had a guild which had a god so maybe your guild's god maybe you were a a blacksmith and your guild's god was zeus and then your family had a family god there was just all this idolatry worked into the roman system of class and just everywhere you turned and so you would get together with your vocational guild and you would have a regular guild feast most scholars think probably monthly on some kind of monthly probably new moon basis there was probably a vocational guild feast, and these were drunken, debauchery-filled parties full of sexual immorality. Uh, these events uh, revolved around intense amount of drinking and feasting around ceremonial pagan foods. Often raw meat was the uh, food of choice. With this in mind, we hear these words. A little bit of context, and now we get to hear these words from uh, chapter 10. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean, then, that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So these same uh, feasts created quite the ethical dilemma for the Christian believer. They would often have leftover meat from the celebration. This meat from these guild feasts would be sold at a discount meat market within the Agora. They literally had a guild meat market where they sold discounted meat. The meat wasn't that old, but it had been used at a guild feast. It wasn't used, used. It was leftover. And then they sold it at a discounted price where meat was so expensive. This created quite an interesting dilemma. Could these earlier believers in Corinth buy this discounted meat 
They had been sacrificed to idols. Into this, Paul speaks many words of wisdom. Read to me from uh, chapter 8, Brent. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. There's that weak and strong yeah, we sure. talked about in Romans. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Yes, that's very familiar to Romans. A proper understanding of the context of Corinth helps us interpret this book more accurately. It's safe to say that these Corinthians had a very hard task living in the midst of the culture of Corinth. They had many challenges that may speak into our own culture, just like the last little conversation we had. But how is this body supposed to move forward? How can they deal with this division and idolatry that seeks to tear the mission of God apart? Well, it's to this end that Paul is going to close his letter. If this is the context of the first letter to the Corinthians, if they are struggling with selfish division on one hand and rampant cultural compromise on the other, how will they ever be able to make any progress? Paul suggests the way to conquer the the perils of their situation is love. 1 Corinthians 13. Surprised? I hope not. We shouldn't be. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul moves into an interesting argument. He begins dealing with the unique giftedness of the Corinthian church, namely the miraculous gifts that God has bestowed on them. Uh, Note that this is not written to address rightness and wrongness uh, or to give my, uh, I'm not going to give my personal opinion about the miraculous gifts here. I, I might address it maybe in the next podcast. We'll see. Uh, Clearly something unique is taking place in Corinth that isn't taking place in Philippi or Colossae or Rome. God gets to do whatever God wants. So I'm the last person in the world who's going to have the audacity to claim that such gifts aren't in use in the church today, albeit in conjunction with some pretty helpful instructions about how to use it properly. Paul also talks about that too. But what uh, does become relevant in our discussion here is that even the spiritual gifts have become an issue of contention and division for the people of God in Corinth. Their desire for selfish identity and glorification seems to know no bounds. They are using their own giftedness to promote their place within the body of Christ. And couched in the middle of this three-chapter discussion is that famous chapter that we often call the love chapter. What many people have noticed is that 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and maybe even beyond, is a chiasm. Uh, While I've seen that chiasm identified and described in different ways, it appears that Paul has intentionally placed this conversation about love in the center of a larger conversation about unity. Paul seems to be convinced that the way for them to deal with their divisions and find a place of orderly worship is to lay down their own desires and offer themselves to others in love. This has actually been a thread for Paul throughout the entire letter. Look at Paul's argument. Uh, Let's hear it from uh, chapter 6. Give me some of Paul's argument from chapter 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And he makes a really similar argument uh, just four chapters later. Go ahead and uh, read me that. What's the, what's the address on this one? 1023. All right, 1023, go ahead. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. There's that idea again. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Apparently, Paul thinks that considering others before ourselves is the way to rid our faith community and our worship from the struggles of selfishness and idolatry. Paul isn't. Uh, Paul says it isn't enough to make sure that it's okay to do something morally. Or to be, or, or or to be something. It's more important to consider the impact that all those things have on other people. Not as my, uh, not is my behavior permissible, but is my behavior beneficial? Not is my behavior allowed, but is my behavior constructive for the larger community of faith? Love God, love others. When you love others, God says you are loving Him. Uh, so let's uh, work towards a close here. Let's uh, let's uh, think about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Let's go. Let's go there. It seems that in the quest to find what is considered sacred by the Corinthians, even the Lord's Supper didn't escape their selfishness and division. Man, we have a Corinthian. Whew, that's quite a problem there. Consider this from chapter eleven. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this Eucharist resembled a guild feast for the Corinthians before it did the broken body of Christ. A broken body indeed. Actually, this body of believers is broken beyond recognition. Yet Paul will invite them to a table that can remind them of the solidarity they share with all those brothers and sisters who worship alongside them. At the table, we are reminded of the fact that no matter who we are, we come needy, beaten, battled to the table of God. We find the reminder of the last night Jesus spent with his disciples and the way he served them selflessly. We are reminded of the thing that brings us together and makes us members of the same family. We have, reveled, we have wrestled throughout this conversation about how much our day and culture shares in common with that of Corinth. There is encouragement to the fact that now, 2,000 years later, we are still celebrating the same Eucharist and partaking in the same reminder of all that brings us together. I pray those regular moments will remind us of love incarnate, that we would remember the life and ministry of Jesus and how he loved, 
that we would be able to examine our broken body, the church, and be invited to a table of grace and solidarity with our fellow brothers and sisters, a broken body repaired by the body of Christ. That's First Corinthians, Brent. Well, just a plug for uh, potential future turkey trips. The the idea of the guild feast uh, really uh, solidified in my mind when we were in Turkey. We're not in Corinth. Uh, what what city was that? We're in uh, Priene. No, not Priene. Uh, the one with the big theater and oh, then that yeah, temple sure. at the base. Yeah, uh, we talked about that at Pergamum too. Pergamum. Yeah, that's we talked about it I'm quite a bit. Of. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That that uh, man. I I mean. Yeah. The Guild Feast is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> and, you, and you you definitely come to understand it there. Yeah. So just a little plug for turkey trips. You yep. Know, in case you're thinking like, oh, all the actions in Israel. You know, there's some really oh, cool stuff to learn stuff in Turkey. In Turkey. Holy smokes. All right. Well, that does it for First Corinthians. Uh, we've still got Second Corinthians to come. But uh, if you have any questions in the meantime, you can get a hold of us on Twitter. Marty's at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, join our Baymoss Slack if you want to be in discussion with some other uh, listeners as well. It's a great discussion there every week as we release new episodes. So thanks for joining us on the Baymoss Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.